All right, we are back here again, political theory and um, other stuff, doing another episode of The Marx Corner. The Marx Corner is where we, over the course of a decade, go through one of Marx's texts, and uh, we try to make sure that we're recording those episodes over a long enough period of time that we can't remember the beginning of the book by the time we're done with the end of the book. Which is actually the main problem with Marx's uh, works, is that uh, once people get to the end, they just fucking totally don't remember what the what fuck he's talking yeah. about. Right? Yeah, totally. And and I had that problem. I've had that problem with non or with fiction works too. Oh yeah, the series, for instance. Holy I don't know shit. about that. No, just series of books. Oh yeah, yeah. And, or like if you're reading it while they come out. Holy shit, right. dude. Like, for a while, my stepdad tried to get me into that Wheel of Time oh, stuff I've heard by Robert stuff. Jordan. Is that high fantasy? Or, yeah. Or, yep. Okay. Not yep. Uh, exactly my cup of tea. Um, where those books often lose me is, like, in being just overly descriptive of shit I don't care mm-hmm. about. Um, right. Like, four pages into the sword hilt description, I'm just like, all right, fuck, dude, this is... Uh, and I get it, you know, I mean, like, some people are super into, like, military explanations, some people are super into the world building... Uh, which yep. is why so many people are so into Tolkien. Uh, and yep. I am more of a, is this a fun story or not sort of guy. Right. Yep. Totally. So um, so today is our second installment of The Introduction to Capital, Volume 1. Also, if you're listening, theoretically, thank you for your support. If this has made it to the free episodes, you fucking slackers. Y- yeah. Give us some, some of that uh, money you've acquired from your wage slavery. shit man i i lost my place where are we at we are uh starting on page 17 with part two of the introduction or part two of the first part of the introduction (laughs) uh called the method of capital all righty do you want to uh start her off here yeah sure why not all right the method of capital uh shit dude i already forgot what's the name of the dude who wrote the intro uh, Max, hold on, hold on, hold on. I better not say the wrong name because oh, when Ernest I'm Mindel. Around... Ernest Mindel. Okay, yeah, yep. yeah. Okay. I was just gonna say when I'm fucking around with German names, I usually end up saying some Nazi's name by accident. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I don't want to. Goebbels, Goebbels. Uh, right. <laughs> right, right, exactly, dude. No joke, no joke. Uh, yeah, you can you can take it. Oh, oh wait, it, it's uh, what'd you say? Sorry, what's his name again? Ernest Mendel. Ernest Mendel. Okay. Yeah. I don't know not anything Mendel about up. him. Just right. <laughs> Do you know anything about this Ernest Mendel dude? I know he wrote the introduction to the fourth <laughs> edition of Capital Volume <laughs> well, 1. No, I don't. I'm sorry. Let's see if this is the right dude. Is he related to Howie? Because you could also He's, pronounce uh, his name Mandel. Oh, okay. Like that um, creepy dude who shaves his head and is like germophobic or whatever. He does game shows, what? but Howie Mandel. Okay. Do you know what I'm talking about at all? No. Pretty... I'm sure I do, but um, I just don't. It's not ringing a bell for me right now. Ernest Mendel was, or is, or no, was a uh, Belgian economist. Um, he was born uh, 1923 in Frankfurt, Germany. He died uh, 1995 in Brussels, Belgium. He is 
edited works by Ricardo Marx Sraffa, S R A F F A. That used to sound. Your guess was as good as mine. It sounds Sarah Sarafa Sarafa Sarah Sarah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like a pretty straightforward yeah, dude. Also, um, he's good at timelessly writing. I wouldn't have been able to guess that this intro was that old. Yep. Or written by somebody. Uh, no, like obviously people don't write their age, but yeah, I just would have pictured him as kind of a younger, more modern guy while reading this. Intro. Totally, it is very uh, straightforward. Yeah, he, according to Wikipedia, was a, uh, a Marxian economist, and he was a Trotskyist activist and theorist. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, and he, he uh, fought in the underground resistance against the Nazis. Oh no way! Fuck yeah, yeah. dude! Fuck yeah! I just read. I can't remember the name of it, but it's just like a Reddit post, so who knows if it's even fucking true, but it seemed pretty legit. About, like, this group of, like, hippie slash folksy Weimar resistance, and they just, like, traveled and would play folk music with each other all the time, unless they encountered a group of Nazis, and then they'd just fucking kill them all. And then go on just in their merry, traveling, singing ways, and I was like, fuck yeah, dude. If we need a resistance, that's gonna be the one that I join for America. Uh, just folk music and, and AKs. That's so awesome. Yeah, those people. Like I, um, I read about some some woman on Wikipedia a long time ago that was a uh, part of uh, the resistance. I think in uh, like Denmark or, or Holland or something like that. And she was like fourteen at the time, and she would be. And I think she wasn't. I don't think anyone like told her you have to do this, but she started doing like a. I think it's called like a a honeypot or whatever, where she would fucking um, be like, oh, hey, uh, SS captain, do you want to have sex with me in the woods? Let's go. And they'd go into the woods, and she'd, like, stab them to death. And fucking nice. she killed, like, 14, um, uh, like, um, higher-level dudes. Because Dude, that's getting two scumbags in one turn. You get Nazis, plus you get Nazi pedophiles. Fucking perfect, dude. Yep. Fucking perfect. Yep. Uh, the only reason I know what honeypotting is is from that silly movie, The Interview. With Seth oh, Rogen I haven't seen that. And James Franco, right, right, right. They go. Uh, it's it's actually it's worth watching just because of the controversy it stirred. Mm -hmm. Just to know a movie like that could have occurred, uh, stirred such global controversy, right? Uh, which is what I was thinking the whole time I was watching it. It's also for my humor. Like I think Seth Rogen and James Franco are pretty funny. Um, but they talk about honey potting all the time. They're like, you honey potted me with a dude. You're not. I, how did you know? Just shit like that. <laughs> um, She's, That's a, she's here to honeypot your fucking dick, bro. Don't pay attention to that. <laughs> Just shit like oh that. My God. Uh, also, on a side note, because this is Patreon, you have to listen to us ramble. Dude, the boys. Fucking the boys, man. That's probably- Season two. Season two. Season two. Uh, yeah. I honestly think it's probably one of the better critiques of capitalism on TV today. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. just do such uh, a good it. job of like scaling. Like The only reason they don't act like this is because they don't have superheroes on staff currently. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing presented as good or uh wholesome and by a large corporation uh ever fits those those actual ideals. Right. That show does a great job at Dane Street. And how easy yeah. it is for people just to buy into the whole thing because it makes it more comfortable. Right. Well, and also it's like uh what is one one man's wholesomeness is another yeah. man's fucking like exploitation and, yep. and suffering. I'll I'll never forget um fucking season one i thought it was so how they did the um the 
sexual assault scene with the um, Aqua dude was yeah. so on point. I thought that was so fucking cool. This season, they also do it really well with Homelander. Um, okay. He, uh, not to spoil much, but he gets in a situation with a woman and it's just so clear how vile and hateful but how scared everybody is of him and it's just such a creepy dynamic uh, i don't want to because i don't think you've watched it yet i don't want to spoil too no, much of who he's interacting with but when you see it you'll know what i'm talking about it's just like Ugh. well and and uh what you were talking about with um it's a good critique of capitalism i was just thinking about with with homelander and how his uh his like um superpowers create space between him and uh, like mortal humans, yep. you know, yep. and uh, that made me think of how those um, studies about um, billionaires and millionaires and how yeah. the richer you get, the less empathetic you are. And um, I would argue that's because that wealth, that money and capital are, is creating power, uh, power for and you a, and a lack of and, consequences in any right that you do. You know, much like uh, much like a superhero, yep. you know. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I uh, didn't it took you it took you a while of talking about the show to convince me to actually watch it. But once I started season one, I was hooked. You yeah. know, I, I think I binged uh, the whole the whole season. Um, it's one of the best uses of superheroes I've seen for a storytelling format because yeah. they're not like superfluous. It's yeah, it's a really good allegory. Yeah, I thought uh, and a very yeah. creative use of the shit. Totally, totally. All right, uh, well, let's you go. Want to hit it off? Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, back to Marx. <laughs> so, the purpose of capital is itself a clear reminder of the method of knowledge applied by Marx to his main work. The method of how the materialistic dialectic. Marx left no doubt that this was indeed how he himself understood his labors. In a letter sent to Maurice uh, Le Chatre, I can't ever say French words, the editor of the first French edition of Capital Volume 1, he insisted on the fact that he was the first person to have applied this method to the study of economic problems. Again, in his own postface to the second German edition of Capital Volume 1, Marx specified this use of the dialectical method as the differentia specifica of capital, which distinguished it from all other economic economic analyses. When the dialectical method is applied to the study of economic problems, economic phenomena are not viewed separately from each other by bits and pieces, but in their interconnection as an integrated totality structured around and by a basic predominant mode of production. Is that really true? Was Marx the first one to look at economy with like a dialectical lens? That's fucking insane. I guess that makes sense because they were so focused on like the nature of things and like yeah, okay. I just had never really given that's people don't think dialectically usually. Like we right. don't think about multiple things interacting and resulting in, you know, an outcome necessarily. Right. But I I just for me the enlightenment people did kind of start to frame dialectically shit. But I also guess there wasn't really uniform economies back then in the same sense either. So maybe it would have been a much harder kind of like if you were depending on the time period, it could change by like, I don't know exactly. They're not necessarily city states, but you could travel a small amount of time and be in a much different structured kingdom or a, a kingdom that structures their uh, economy much differently. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So maybe it just wasn't as universal of a topic. Uh, okay. Uh, 
Well, and keep in mind, too, it wasn't until I, I, we were talking about, uh, you know, with uh, David Graeber's death, uh, he wrote that book, Debt, 5,000 Years. I got the audio book from Audible and started listening to it. I'm like three hours in or whatever. And one of the things he talks about that I didn't really understand is that, like, Adam Smith invented the word economy and economics. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. Like, it wasn't, like, a thing before that. So it's not like um, there were hundreds of years of of people thinking of um, economics. And I guess, like, especially in, like, the early years, somewhat modern capitalism with, like, the East India Trading Company and stuff, a lot of those dudes were trying to hide what they were doing because they just didn't want people to know how much fucking money they really had, so... This dude, uh, what Ernst Mendel or mm-hmm. whatever, says earlier that when Marx was writing this, capitalism was still just oh, islands, baby. Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so even in the mid 1800s, it wasn't like there was like this crazy uh, uniformity that I we have to today. Com- right. Uh, shit. Really, before the 1980. Right. <coughs> I'm just gonna start again from the top. Uh, when the dialectical method is applied to the study of economic problems, economic phenomena are not viewed separately from each other by bits and pieces, but in their inner connection has an integrated totality structured around and by a basic predominant mode of production this totality is analyzed in all its aspects and manifestations has determined by a certain given laws of motion which relate to its origins and its inevitable disappearance these laws of motion of the given mode of production are discovered to be nothing but the unfolding of the inner contradictions of that structure which define its very nature the given economic structure is seen to be characterized at one and the same time by the unity of these contradictions and by their struggle, both of which determine the constant changes which it undergoes. The quantitative changes which constantly occur in the given mode of production through adaptation, integration of reforms, and self-defense evolution are distinguished from these qual- from those qualitative changes which, by sudden leaps, produce a different structure, a new mode of production, revolution. That's a cool way to think about that. Nice. You want to... Yeah, yeah, I'll go. I'll go. All right. So, um, Marx clearly opposes his own dialectical method of investigation and knowledge to that of Hegel. Uh, although he never hesitates to recognize his debt of gratitude to the German philosopher who, spurred on by the French Revolution, uh, capitulated, catapulted, catapulted, catapulted dialectical thought back into the Uh, modern world. Hegel's dialectics were idealist. The basic mode of the basic motion was that of the absolute idea. Material reality was only the outward appearance of ideal essence. For Marx, on the contrary, the dialectic is materialistic. Um, The ideal is nothing but the material world reflected in the mind of man and translated into forms of thought. The basic laws of motion of history are those of real men themselves producing their own material existence in a given social framework. The development of thought corresponds in the final analysis to the basic movement and reflects it, albeit through many meditations. Um, Thus, the scientific thought process through which Marx came to understand the operations of the capitalist mode of production was itself a product of that of production, of bourgeois society and its contradictions. 
only secondarily can it be seen as a product of the development of many human sciences and ideologies. Classical German philosophy, English political economy, French histor historiography, histor historiography, and political science. Pre-Marxian socialism. Only the growth of bourgeois society and its contradictions, above all the struggle between capital and labor, enabled Marx to assimilate, assimilate, combine, and transform these sciences in the specific way and the specific direction he did. Nevertheless, while the materialist dialectic is Hegel's idealist dialectic, turned right side up, up again, both have basic common traits. Dialectics as the logic of motion presupposes that all motion, all evolution, whether of nature, society, or human thought, adapts certain general forms which are called dialectical. Engels and Lenin both saw, in the very way in which Capital Volume 1 was constructed, a striking application of this general dialectical method. Thus, Lenin wrote that although Marx had never written his project, his projected short treatise on dialectics, he had nevertheless left us capital, which is the application of materialist dialectic in the field of economic phenomena. I just have to say it's crazy that this still isn't necessarily an accepted version of studying economies. You know, like they just even like today when I listen to the news for like the 10 minutes I watch it, they just talk about the economy like it's some sort of bubble with the stock market and stuff. And they never reach into like, I'm, you know, I know there are people that do that. But it's crazy that on a large scale as a society, we haven't accepted the fact that the economy isn't its own thing, that it affects every part of, of life. Um, that reminds me and it's not and this obviously wasn't what they were going for but it reminds me of um the episode of south park around the 2008 housing crisis where they're like doing a riff on the whole jesus thing yes. and um they're just like making the economy god you know and uh stan's dad is just like oh you know we have to um we have to do this for the economy we have to show the economy that we like believe in it or right. respect it or whatever <laughs> right. and it's like th this idea of taking it uh looking at it in a in a vacuum you know yep. and without all of its parts like not even analyzing its its inner workings yeah so no. um precisely because marx's dialectic is a materialist a materialist one however it does not start from intuition preconceptions or mystifying schemes but from a full assimilation of scientific data the method of investigation must differ from the method of exposition <laughs> i don't know what that means um, maybe you'll all understand it later on or empirical facts have to be uh, gathered first the given state of knowledge has to be fully grasped only when this is achieved can a dialectical uh, reorganization of the of the material be undertaken in order to understand the given totality if this is successful the result is a reproduction in man's thought of the material totality the capitalist mode of production just to back up it's just a difference between how you investigate it and how you explain it 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then he's also saying like, you got to get all of your data points together and then analyze them prior to explaining what's going on in the world. Yes. Yep. Okay. So I'm going to keep going. Uh, The main danger for any scientist involved in the study of social phenomena is that of taking anything for granted, of problem blindness. This distinction between appearance and essence which Marx inherited inherited from Hegel and which is part and parcel of the dialectical method of investigation is nothing but a constant attempt to pierce farther and farther through successive layers of phenomena um, towards laws of motion which explain why these phenomena evolve in a certain direction and in certain ways. Constantly searching for questions, calling into question, where others only see ready-made answers and vulgar, vulgar evidence. This is certainly one of Marx's main merits as a revolutionary innovator in economic science. Oh, shit. Can you talk about that? I... My mind was wandering during that paragraph. Yeah. Um, so just that he, I, I, what I'm understanding it is that he is just diving deeper into it. He's not. Okay. I, I don't know if they're implying Hegel did this, but he's not taking like the easiest answer. He's taking okay. all of these points and like really digesting them. And the fact that, yeah, he really put time into this and uh, came up with a new mode of thought to go around it, I think. Okay. just opened up the expanse of what the expanse of the dialectic and, and adding more you know things to look at okay uh, i'm gonna keep going a little bit if that's okay um but for marx the materialist dialect dialection dialectician dialectician oh the material okay but f- but for marx the materialist dialectician the distinction between essence and appearance is no sense in no sense implies that appearance is less real than essence movements of value determine in the last analysis movements of prices oh wait movements of prices but marx the materialist would have laughed at any marxist in quotes who suggests that prices were unreal in quotes uh, because in the last analysis determined by value movements. The distinction between essence and appearance refers to the different levels of determination. That is, in the last analysis to the process of cognition, not two different degrees of reality. To explain the capitalist mode of production in its totality, it is wholly insufficient to understand simply the basic essence, the law of value. It is necessary to integrate essence and appearance through all their intermediate uh, medi- meditating Medi- links. Mediating. Or, okay, mediating links. To explain how and why a given essence appears in given concrete forms and not in others. For these appearances themselves are neither accidental nor self-evident. They pose problems. They have to be explained in their turn. And this very explanation helps to pierce through uh, new layers of mystery and brings us again nearer to a full understanding of of specific of the specific form of economic organization which we want to understand to deny this need to reintegrate essence and appearance is an 
undialectical and as mystifying as to accept appearances as they are without looking for the basic forces and contradictions which they tend to hide from the superficial and, and empiricist observer. Okay, so he's just saying, like, you got, you've got, you got to dig deeper. You've got to um, look at everything in, their total, in its totality. And you can't, um, just because something is not the essence, just because it's the appearance, does not mean that it um, holds less merit. But you can't just focus on the appearance. Right, yeah, yeah. You've got to, like, the appearance matters because it is the reality of sorts, but the appearance doesn't give you the answer. You have to look into it. You can't disregard the essence that brought the appearance and even if the appearance doesn't make sense from the essence you can't disregard the appearance either they are intrinsically linked even if they don't appear that way from your first glance sort of deal okay. and then like how do you explain why they're not as connected as they should be okay cool do yeah. you want to do the next two paragraphs yeah and then I'll do uh, two or three after that and then you can finish it off yeah are we shooting to 25 part three okay, yeah, yeah. The way in which capital starts with an analysis of the basic categories of commodity production with the basic unit, fundamental cell, of capitalist economy, economic life, the commodity has often been cited as a model application of this materialistic dialectic. Uh, Marx himself makes it clear that he does not start from a basic concept value, but from an elementary material phenomenon, the commodity which is at the basis of capitalism, has the only economic organization based upon generalized commodity production. It is therefore correct, but incomplete, strictly speaking, to say that Marx's method consists of rising from the abstract to the concrete. In fact, he starts from elements of the material concrete to go to the theoretical abstract, which helps him then to reproduce the concrete totality in his theoretical analysis. In its full richness and deployment, the concrete is always a combination of innumerable theoretical abstractions. But the material concrete, that is, real bourgeois society, exists before this whole scientific endeavor determines it in the last instance, and remains a constant practical point of reference to test the validity of the theory. Only if the reproduction of this concrete totality in man's thought comes nearer to the real material totality is thought really scientific. At first sight, the movement which dominates Capital Volume 1 appears as a movement of economic categories, from the commodity and its inner contradictions to the accumulation of capital and its breakdown. The question has often been asked, is this movement just an abstract synopsis of the essence of capitalism, or is it a greatly simplified reflection of real economic development? That is, the real history leading from the first appearance of commodity production up to full-scale capitalist production in the West, purified of all secondary and combined forms, which would only obscure the basic nature of this movement. Um, that's, I mean, basically, that's what we were just talking about before we read the paragraph as well. Just keeping a, a broader, like, keeping the same size answer, but broadening what you're thinking about to get to that answer, understanding that it's all kind of connected, I guess. Uh, it is impossible to answer this question with simply a yes or a no. Commodities produced accidentally in pre-capitalist societies at the very margin of the basic processes of production and consumption obviously cannot trigger off the striking and terrifying logic of the law of value, which Marx majestically unfolds in capital. Commodity production has a basic and dominant feature of economic life presupposes capitalism. That is a society in which labor power and instruments of labor have themselves become commodities. In that sense, it is true that the analysis of volume one of capital is logical based upon dialectical logic and not historical. 
Interesting. Wait, I don't understand that part. What is he saying? His, like, law of value, uh, the basic process and production of consumption, that can be looked at with logical instead of historical, I think. Just that movement of history from market being, like, a small offshoot to it being the dominant, the dominant force, he can see that with logic instead of only historical, I think is what it's saying. Okay. All right, I'll do uh, I'll do a couple more, and then uh, yeah. we'll get uh, we'll have you wrap up like the last yeah, no two problem. paragraphs. Um, but dialectics imply that every phenomenon has an or- origin and an end, and an end. That not okay. But dialectics imply that every phenomenon has an origin and an end. That nothing is either eternal or finished. Uh, once and for all. Hence, the historical cell of capital is at the same time the key to the the logical analysis of capital. Uh, what's that? Philogenesis. What's that? I don't. Know. And, and and the other the second word too. I don't know either uh, of those. Embryology. Oh, I know what embryos are. So that's like the study of of embryos. Um, but I don't know this. <clears throat> the evolutionary development and diversification of a species or group of organisms. Uh, okay. Okay. And then let's make sure we know what embryology means. Yeah, you're exactly right. The study of embryos. So kind of like I think the difference between the evolution and the creation. Okay. Okay. And maybe they can't be separated. Okay, yeah, the phylogenesis and the embryology cannot be completely separated. So kind of like humans and the, you know, hominid trail. We're not, okay. in, we're not an Australopithecus anymore, but we really can't be separated from it because we wouldn't be here today if they were not sort of do, I think. Okay, that makes sense. Unless you're a hardcore evangelical woman. Well. Right. It, uh, yeah, unless you're not looking at... Um, the history or the the i think you could call the um the evolution in the fossil record i feel like that is like uh material conditions yeah. right yeah i think so all right within capital accumulation in contemporary everyday capitalist life some aspects of primitive uh, capital accumulation are produced Without that primitive capital accumulation, there would be no capitalist mode of production. So the logical analysis does, does reflect some basic trends of historical development after all. The simplest forms of appearance of the economic categories, which are just forms of material existence, of material reality as perceived and simplified by the human mind, are often also their primitive. Yeah, their primitive. That is their original form. However, controversial controversial however controversial this interpretation may be, it is difficult to deny that this unity of historical and logical analysis is the way in which Marx and Engels understood their own method. So it's just saying like this is this is how they did it. People are pissed, but this is actually how they did it. Um, a whole literature has been produced from Bernstein to Popper. The Bears and guy? I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Sorry. Terrible. Uh, oh, oh um, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I got it after you explained it. And on to the contemporary academic uh, economists on the subject of the uselessness 
uh, in quotes, and metaphysical, in quotes, or even the mystifying, in quotes, nature of the dialectical method which Marx borrowed from Hegel. The positivist narrowness of outlook of these critics themselves generally bears eloquent testimony to the contrary, that is, to the broad historical vision and the piercing lucidity which the dialectical method helped Marx to achieve. Thanks to the method, Marx's capital appears as a giant compared to any subsequent or contemporary work of economic analysis. It was never intended as a handbook to help governments to solve such problems as balance of payments deficits, nor yet as a learned, if somewhat trite, uh, explanation of all the exciting happenings in the marketplace when Mr. Smith finds no buyer for the last of his thousand tons of iron. It was intended as an explanation of what would happen to labor, machinery, technology, the size of enterprises, the social structure of population, the discontinuity of economic growth, and the relations between workers and work as the capitalist mode of production unfolded all its terrifying potential. From that point of view, the achievement is truly impressive. It is precisely because of Marx's capacity to discover the long-term laws of motion of the capitalist mode of production in its essence, irrespective of thousands of impurities, and of second, secondary aspects that his long-term predictions, the laws of accumulation of capital, stepped-up technological progress, accelerated increase in the produ productivity and intense, intensity of labor, intensity of labor, growing concentration and centralization of capital, transformation of the great majority of economically active people into sellers of labor power, declining rate of profit, increased rate of surplus value, periodically recurrent recessions, inevitable class struggle between capital and labor, increasing revolutionary attempts to overthrow capitalism have been so striking have been so strikingly confirmed by so history. strikingly confirmed. It's wild that you could disregard Marx, considering he was almost like a legit Nostradamus of the last 150 years. Which, which was only because of only because of his uh, his analysis, yep. in the sense that it was a dialectical analysis. Like he understood right. what the societal right. impacts of this could be outside of fucking banknotes. Right. Um, so do you want to do the last two paragraphs for us? Yeah, yeah. This judgment has generally been challenged on two grounds. The easiest way out for critics of Marx is simply to deny that the laws of motion of the capitalist mode of production, which he discovered, have been verified at all. Seems like a struggle. Uh, this is generally done by reducing them to a couple of misstated. Ah, oh, the Peterson take. Okay. This is generally done by reducing <laughs> them to a couple of misstated and oversimplified formula progressive immiseration of the working class and ever-worsening economic crisis. A more sophisticated objection was advanced by Karl Popper, who denied the very possibility, or rather the scientific nature of such laws. 
calling them unconditional historical prophecies to be clearly distinguished from scientific predictions. Ordinary predictions in science, says Popper, are conditional. They assert that certain changes, say, of the temperature of water in a kettle, will be accompanied by other changes, say, the boiling of water. Popper denies the scientific nature of capital by asserting that, unlike scientific theories, its hypothesis cannot be scientifically tested. This is obviously based upon a misunderstanding of the very nature of the materialistic dialectic, which, as Lenin pointed out, requires constant verification through praxis to increase its cognition content. I'm going to look up what that means. Um, uh, can I take a guess first? Uh, I think it means, like, um, the actions taken by revolutionaries. Okay, I have two further yeah, it's the process by which a theory... Uh, lesson or skill is enacted. I had to look okay. it up because I took I took a back when I was stuff to try and be a teacher for that year. I did that. Uh, one of the things I had to do was take this thing called the praxis test. So that one just stood out to me. In fact, it would be very easy to prove Marxist analysis to have been wrong if experience had shown, for example. That the more capitalist industry develops, the smaller and smaller the average factory becomes. The less it depends on new technology, the more its capital is supplied by the workers themselves. The more workers become owners of their factories, the less the part of wages taken by consumer goods becomes, and the greater becomes the part of wages used for buying the workers' own means of production. If, in addition, there had been decades within, without economic fluctuations and a full-scale disappearance of trade unions and employers' associations, all flowing from the dis from the disappearance of contradictions between capital and labor, inasmuch as workers increasingly become the controllers of their own means and conditions of production. Then one could indeed say that capital was so much rubbish and had dismally failed to predict what would happen in the real capitalist world a century after its publication. It is sufficient to compare the real history of the period since 1867, on the one hand, with what Marx predicted it would be, and on the other, with any such alternative laws of motion. To understand how remarkable indeed was Marx's theoretical achievement and how strongly it stands up against the experimental test of history. So fucking true. Fuck I'm yeah. trying to think if I can even think of somebody who nailed it. I Not that I have a brain. If I can't think of it, it means it didn't happen. But, um, I mean, yeah, it's eerie how much this all developed, uh, how Marx predicted it would. Yeah. Well, I, I think, um, you know, and that's, um, that's the thing that... Um, not that I've read it, but I've been told through Wikipedia. That's what Ingalls is talking about in his like utopianism versus uh, scientific scientism or whatever, where he's talking about the difference between uh, utopian socialists that came before Marx and scientific socialism, which is Marx and after. You know, like those uh, utopian dudes, like I think Foyer was like, oh, dude, there will be like the rivers will be filled with lemonade and like the moon will be made out of cheese and we'll all be happy. And obviously there's um, a departure between right. those two. But um, yeah, so that wraps us up for part two of the first introduction. Um, next time we will start on uh, part three the plan of capital it's uh, uh page 25 and uh yeah we appreciate y'all hanging in there with us thanks have a great day